Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and along with my husband, Ian, we're exploring American history with the help of a colorful treasure hunter and how tourism can develop through arts, culture, and sustainable winemaking. Thanks, dear. First up, the home of Randall McCoy, the patriarch of the famed McCoy family, and the site of the deadly 1888 New Year's Day showdown between the Hatfields and the McCoys has been unearthed by a pair of vocational metal detector enthusiasts, amateur scientists, and history buffs. Tim the Ringmaster Sailor and his partner King George Wyatt, host of the National Geographic Channel series Diggers. The Ringmaster Tim Sailor joins us today to tell us about their historic discoveries. We found out about the pig trial and the, the Ellison Hatfield, you know, being stabbed 26 or 27 times and then shot. So, I mean, we learned all these little details about the battle. The Inter-American Development Bank, the IDB, is the leading source of development financing for Latin America and the Caribbean. But what you may not know is that the IDB has an extensive cultural educational outreach program, and Ivan Duque Marquez, the IDB's Culture, Creativity, and Solidarity Division Chief, joins us to talk about the unique role culture plays in economic development in Latin America. So we use culture as a, as, as, as a communication tool on the one hand, but we also make culture an essence of, of, of development. Sustainability has taken hold of the wine industry. One of the leaders in the vanguard is Allison Jordan, Executive Director of the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, a nonprofit organization created by the Wine Institute and the California Association of Wine Grape Growers to promote environmental and social responsibility in the industry. Um, there also are specific that actually can improve wine quality. So things like conserving water. Um, a lot of vintners um, and growers in this state are using drip irrigation. And by stressing the vine, you can actually improve the quality of the wine. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. And this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. The home of Randall McCoy, the patriarch of the famed McCoy family, and the site of the deadly 1888 New Year's Day showdown between the Hatfield and McCoys has been unearthed by a pair of vocational metal detector enthusiasts. Tim, the ringmaster sailor, and his partner, King George Wyatt, are host of the National Geographic Channel series Diggers. And the ringmaster, Tim Sailor, joins us today to tell us about their historic discoveries. Tim, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So I have some breaking news for you, and it's still very unbelievable for me. But I just confirmed over the weekend that I am actually a descendant of the Hatfield family. Over Just over the weekend you found this out? Well, you know, my uncle um, has been saying for years we're... we're a, uh, a descendant of the Hatfields, but this is a particular uncle who embellishes a lot. And so <laughs> I actually asked another uncle whose veracity I do trust, and he said, Tan, you know, that's true. And he mentioned the name Devil Hatfield. 
Um, and I just realized or found out that Devil Hatfield was a character that Kevin Cosner played in the Hatfield McCoy movie for which he won an uh. Emmy. So I still think it's unbelievable. I need to do more research because um, I need evidence. You know, as a lawyer, I need my evidence. But uh, that's but, right. <laughs> but I found this very fascinating, and uh, and the history has always you know been very fascinating. And I know this New Year's marks the 125th anniversary of this legendary battle. Is is that what prompted you and George to see what you could dig up? Well, it was partly that and the fact that National Geographic had already been in contact with uh, uh, Bill Richardson, who's a Hatfield-McCoy expert in that area, and uh, he's out of one of the universities there. I can't remember exactly right now which one, but he knows everything about it, knows where everything happened, all the dates, exactly how it all played out, and that really helped that we had that connection because he got us in on the site where Randall McCoy's well has been known to be. And ironically, the land where Randall McCoy's homestead was is owned by a Hatfield descendant right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so what did you know about this famous family feud between the Hatfields and McCoy's before you actually embarked on this expedition? You know, what I knew was what... Most people on the street would know if you just said Hatfield-McCoy, of course they'd recognize, oh, it was a feud out in the mountains out east, and, and it was the two families in the 1800s. I didn't really know the details of it because I hadn't watched the miniseries or anything at that point. And uh, once I was there for about a week, then, of course, everything started falling into place because we went to these places. Bill took us all over and was telling us what happened, and... We found out about the pig trial and the the Ellison Hatfield and the you know being stabbed twenty six or twenty seven times and then shot. So I mean, we learned all these little details about the battle mm-hmm. after we got there. Yeah, you know, it just strikes me these guys were quite brutal, and it all started over, as you said, a pig. Um, I, it's hard to conceptualize that today. <laughs> it is. And I mean, Bill will say, you know, that's one of the theories because I think it went back even to the Civil War, some of the battles. But I think that pig probably did really trigger something. You know, even if it had started before, it really, you know, set it off once they <laughs> had that pig trial. <laughs> Must be some pretty uh, good tasting bacon. <laughs> Exactly. That's what I said. In fact, the show that aired, you know, about the Hatfields and McCoys that we did, you know, that was my thing. You know, I said I could totally understand why this started because it was over delicious bacon. You know, <laughs> <laughs> now, you know in in the series, and and uh, we had a, a chance to preview the uh, this particular show over the weekend, and it struck me too. You know, uh, earlier last year, sometime last year. Uh, we channeled, Ian and I channeled our inner paleontologist, and we went on a dinosaur dig. And when I was watching you guys, in, in you know, canvassing this landscape, you really made it look easy. But I know just from my little bit of experience being a paleontologist for a day, um, that's a really painful, slow process that you have to undertake when, when going on these excavations. Absolutely. There... I mean, we have, you know that the shows, you know, if you take commercials and everything, you get it packed down into 22 minutes. 
and we've been there filming a week. We were actually there at that at several different places, and we were having a lot of trouble. We were starting to get nervous because we just were not finding anything. And sometimes it just takes that. I mean, you have to be so patient. And what people don't see in that half an hour show is the fact that we dug a thousand holes before we found something that we thought was worth talking about on television. Mm-hmm. And and when you guys did find something, you were quite comical. <laughs> I, I chuckled watching this at one o'clock in the morning. You, you know, it was good entertainment for me. <laughs> yeah, well, we. I mean, George and I both love history. We have a great appreciation for it, but we're also kind of goofy, and we've always been that way. Our families have always known it. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, it, it, we just look at the fact that. I mean, you can love history, and it's not mutually exclusive to have a sense of humor about it, too. So, I mean, we definitely have our fun. I mean, you find something that old, like if you pull a coin out that says 1865, I mean, it may not be old to a paleontologist, and it may not be rare or worth any money, but it's not really about that for us. It's about kind of the thrill of the hunt and the Mm -hmm. fact that you're finding something that's been laying there for 150 years that nobody's touched since then, and it's just... Sometimes that just makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up, and you just kind of freak out. Yeah. So, what's the background story? The backstory on on you and George, and how you came about. You know this this interest in metal detecting, and uh, and how you guys came together and formed this series. Uh, it's just. I mean, it's a it's a long, complicated story, but I'll try to make it short. It was. Uh, I mean. Even as a kid, I was kind of a nerd, and I loved coins, and I was putting, you know, you'd take the pennies and stick them in those little blue books you could buy at a coin store and punch them in the holes. And I mean, I did that, and one day, I mean, I, I don't know, I must have been in early high school or junior high or something, I saw some guy with a metal detector, and I just kind of went up, and like kids do, they're, they're kid magnets. You know, if you're out in the yard somewhere, all of a sudden the neighborhood kids will be all huddled over you watching you dig, and I went over and looked at this guy, and he said, why don't you take this shovel and dig this hole for me? He goes, there's going to be an old silver quarter in there. And mm-hmm. I just thought, how can he know that? And he let me dig it up, and sure enough, out rolls the silver quarter, and I was just completely hooked at that point and saved all my paper out money, bought a detector, a real old, you know, an old model, and then I had that for years and forgot about it. And then I moved to Montana about 10 years ago, ran into George and he's a big time hunter you know big game hunter and elk and deer and everything and and it's just another form of hunting and and I found this old detector when I was moving and I just I went out in the backyard just for fun and found three silver coins and we started talking about it and next thing you know we bought machines we bought computers we're making our own videos and that went on for several years and then all of a sudden out of nowhere we get a phone call and it says guys have any interest in having a tv show and then here we are wow i mean you're you're a great example of something that you know i really i preach on is that you know when you follow a passion that you have it it turns into something it turns into a new purpose and so um i applaud you guys just for for sticking with it and and really you know finding your way to this 
this platform because it, it's it's wonderful and it, you know not only are you doing something you love about but you're teaching others you're teaching us about history and I know there's a new a lot of new conversations that are going to come up um, during the the series that uh, that airs and in particular with the Hatfield and, uh, and McCoy there's a lot of new conversations that have risen for me uh, even in my family. Right. It's just it, it's crazy how that works. I mean, a lot of times you're hunting a spot and you might find a couple of coins and it's really great and everything, but most places don't have that kind of historical impact. This is something that the whole world is interested in, mm-hmm. the Hatfields and McCoys. And when we found that string of bullets finally and the, the homestead, and, you know, then the archaeological team was called in and they found the window glass and all the other stuff too. I mean... It was it was kind of a good feeling to actually have found something that people were actually interested in, you know, that had some kind of part in American history. It's, it's in, pretty cool, indeed. And and so you know, with a, with families, uh, a lot of times, you know, our history gets lost. Um, younger people aren't necessarily interested in family history, and by the time they are they are interested, the history tellers, the storytellers, may have left. Do you know if this discovery in particular has sparked any new dialogue um, between uh, or within the families, the Hatfields and McCoys? You know, I I know that it definitely has. In fact, uh, about, it must have been two weeks ago or so in in Virginia, I forget the town now, in West Virginia, uh, right on the border there between Kentucky and Virginia, Williamson, I think, the museum there, it's a place called the Coal House. There's a, uh, a museum in there, and they took the artifacts we found and actually put them on display for the public. And people have been coming, not just locals, but from all over the world to come in and see this and talk about it. So I know for a fact that, you know, these people are talking about it again. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as I mentioned, this is a, actually a series, and so what are some of the other discoveries you've made as part of this series that you're really excited about and, and that we'll see uh, in the future? Well, it's kind of interesting. We've had some that have aired already. We found a couple places that were like old plantation houses in uh, Virginia, for example, that were used by both. Union and Confederate soldiers as a hospital during the Civil War and stuff like that. And those were fantastic places because they might not have been actual battle sites or anything, but they had both sides camping on the front lawns and everything, and there were artifacts everywhere, and we had a blast digging those up. But um, some of the ones that we, you know, we didn't find necessarily you know, showy, fancy things, like the, the Mine Wars, for example, that was out in the mountains there, too, and that's something that very few people knew about, but we found a place up on the ridge where these uh, coal company guards were fighting against the miners, and they had machine gun nests and everything, and it was kind of a miserable, hot, buggy place to be when we were there, and it, you know, since we weren't finding, you know, we, we weren't looking for coins, and we knew we wouldn't find them, we're out in the middle of the mountains in a, a battle site, and we were just finding all these shell casings, and it you know, it wasn't as thrilling for us as a, a normal hunt, necessarily. Mm-hmm. But when you watch the show, I was shocked at how great it was because it told this whole story and what we found was really important because uh, nobody had ever been up there and found that and figured out where the coal miners had broken through the line. And the archaeologists there had suspicions 
suspicion, so he kind of pointed us in the right direction. But it really turned out to be a fascinating show. You know, it was really cool to see how that all came together. Mm. And then we had other places. We did a shootout at the OK Corral that hasn't aired yet. That's going to be really cool. Uh, you know, that was, of course, in Arizona, Tombstone, Arizona. We've been to New Orleans. We did an Elvis Presley episode. <laughs> uh, we did a Crossroads episode where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil to become a better blues player and all this. So we've been all over the country and done some pretty cool places. Wow. No, so a lot of the, a lot of the shows are U.S.-centric. Do you see yourself going overseas at any point? You know what? I think, I mean, they've already talked about it, so I'm just, I got my fingers crossed because there's some places I'd love to go in, in Europe. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, and I could probably point you to to a couple of places um, selfishly that, you know, I'd love to travel with you. <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, how how have these discoveries changed your perspective of history? You know, the thing is, I, I remember somebody saying boy you guys really know a lot about history and the the funny thing is is you know we have an interest in history and we know a lot about our local history here because that's where we started and we did most of our hunts but on tv you know when we show up at a place we generally don't know any more than the average joe about it it's just the course of that week that we're there i mean we learn so much about it by the end of the week we could teach a class on what happened there because it's you know pounded into our heads and you know everybody we talk to there you know explains exactly what happened and gives us strategies of where to look and all this and so by the end of the week we we're learning just like anybody else that watches the show and learns what we just learned mm-hmm. so well, I mean, it, it's a very interesting series, and I, I hope to find you guys in classrooms in the near future. Have there been any discussions about that? You know we've done that actually even before the show uh, people locally here knew what we had done and we have a kind of a rich history here with all the mining the copper mining in the mountains near butte montana is that uh, where you're at you're in montana yeah we're in montana okay. a little town called anaconda and they had what was called the copper king wars and and uh they were battling for the capital of montana and all that so we had a bunch of history here that we knew about and we found a bunch of artifacts that were kind of related to our area, obviously, because we hunt here. But uh, we've been into classrooms numerous times because the local teachers will say, well, you come in and talk to my class, and they love the fact that we can actually bring real things into the class and let the kids touch them. It's different than looking at a, you know, black and white text in a textbook. Mm-hmm. They can actually hold a, a silver dollar that was from the 18th that some cowboy had carried in his pocket so it's just kind of a a different way to teach a class and mm-hmm. in fact we had a teacher just call us two weeks off hmm. well tim i i've enjoyed talking to you and and, and i love uh i love the the sharing that you and george uh, uh do on on the show um tim sailor the ringmaster by the way where did that nickname come from <laughs> well, when we when we first started hunting for some reason Everywhere we went, we go to any yard, whatever, I was the one that happened to stumble onto the rings. <laughs> cases of these rings, you know, and I don't, it just kind of stuck. They just started calling me the ringmaster, and King George came from the fact that 
he found like four or five silver dollars before any of the other of our group here, our local group, found any. And we all start getting frustrated, and we finally just said, you are the king, you know, and that name <laughs> just stuck to him. You know? <laughs> well, it, it's fitting. I thought for, for a moment, you know, the ringmaster, you're kind of the, the brains behind the operation, and, uh, and King George <laughs> is, you know, the, the leader. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that, you could look at it that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's, but it, you guys are doing uh, some wonderful things, and, and I look forward to seeing uh, many more series of um, the diggers on the National Geographic channel. Tim Saylor is uh, the host, one of the hosts, of uh, the National Geographic channel series, Diggers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great. After the break, we'll explore the intersection of culture and economic development with Ivan Duque Marquez of the Inter-American Development Bank. So we use culture as a, as, as, as a communication tool on the one hand, but we also make culture an essence of, of, of development. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Alex from Baltimore, Maryland, and Tanya and Ian brought me to Baltimore by listening to World Footprints Radio. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world. Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. 
Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio. On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet. And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view. Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio. And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Hello, this is Mertice Spadola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love World Footprint Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. In 1959, the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB, was established with the purpose of being the leading source of development financing for Latin America and the Caribbean nations. But IDB is not your typical bank. It provides many more services than just lending, and its 48 member countries are also stakeholders. Additionally, IDB has an extensive cultural education outreach program, and Ivan Duque Marquez, who serves as the IDB Culture, Creativity, and Solidarity Division Chief, joins us to explain why his financial institution is investing so much in cultural education. Ivan, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, and it's really a pleasure to be in your program and, and sharing these ideas with, with your audience. Now, your title is very long. You almost have to take a deep breath to, to say IDB <laughs> Culture Creative. What is your role as the Culture, Creativity, and Solidarity Division Chief? Well, the, the title of the division is Culture, Creativity, and Solidarity. And although it seems long, what it really does, it integrates three values and three strategic programs that the IDB has. One is the IDB Cultural Center that has been existing for 20 years. The other one is IDB Youth that is a program to generate engagement with the young audience of Latin America and the Caribbean. And last but not least, the Solidarity Program that is a corporate social responsibility initiative that works with the Hispanic community in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, being an IDB, being a financial institution, you're very unique in these offerings. Why has um, IDB adopted such an extensive cultural education outreach program? Well, the, the IDB created the Cultural Center in 1992 with two objectives. One, to provide financing for cultural entrepreneurs in Latin America and the Caribbean, and most importantly, to disseminate the cultural richness and cultural heritage of all the ID member nations, but with a strong concentration in showcasing the cultural heritage of Latin America and the Caribbean in Washington, D.C., primarily because it's our headquarters, and to try to create an engagement from the, from the Washington, D.C. audience with, with our region. Now, throughout the year, you have a number of cultural events ranging from concerts, lectures, and art exhibitions. And most recently in Washington, we had the pleasure to attend the Heavenly Jade of the Maya exhibition just a few days before the world was supposed to end. Talk to us about that particular exhibition and just the excitement that it generated here in Washington. Well, let me, let me start first with a, a brief description of, of the four programs that we have in the Cultural Center. 
Since 1992, we have organized almost 100 exhibitions uh, open to the public, absolutely free to the public. We have organized more than 500 concert lectures and film series, allowing the people to know about uh, the upcoming artists in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And we have uh, also uh, organized um, more than 40 traveling exhibitions with our art collection. Now, last year, we, we had a very important cultural event that was the Bactun 13. That is, what, it was a mile, historical milestone in, uh, in the Mayan history. And we're talking about a civilization that today has more than 6 million living descendants in, in six countries, in five countries, in Mexico, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Salvador, and Belize. So the Back to 13 was an event that we wanted to take advantage, not only to showcase the importance and the richness of the Mayan culture, but also to show the public the IDB's engagement with indigenous communities in Latin America, because that population constitutes, constitutes a strategic stakeholder and a strategic beneficiary of our development programs. What is the, the purpose behind really reaching out to the general Public. I mean, there's there's really no buy-in or investment from the general public into the activities that you perform for your member um, for your member nations. So, what what is the goal and the mission of IDB to reach out to the general public with some of these exhibitions? Well, I think there there are two considerations. One. In Latin America has a very strong culture that that is just beyond the the, the sociological concept of, of culture. Uh, Latin America and the Caribbean it's it's a it's a region that has uh, traditions that need to be shared with the world. There's not too much understanding of of, of the region as a whole and its diversity and uh, and the and the common denominators in their in their cultural evolution. So what we try to do with the IDB Cultural Center products is to create uh, uh, an engagement to educate people about what is the, uh, the cultural heritage from Latin America, but most importantly, to use culture as the right way and as a communication tool to tell the world what a development institution does in the field. So let me put it this way. With the exhibition that we have currently about the Mayas, people will go to our gallery and will not only learn and educate themselves about, about what the Mayas were all about, but they will also learn why a development institution like the IDB that has 48 nations as shareholders and as stakeholders has been contributing with technical corporations, with loans, and with other products to support the lives and conditions of the indigenous communities in Latin America and the Caribbean. So we use culture as a, as, as, as a communication tool on the one hand, but we also make culture an essence of, of, of development. And let me just, just, just say something. Today, just if we look culture as an economic denominator in Latin America, we found out that a country like Mexico has 7% of its GDP derived from cultural and creative industries. So this is something that for us is also an integral part of our analysis of development patterns in the region. The cultural economy is, is a growing and important part of uh, many of uh, your members. As you've looked out to the future in terms of some of your education and some of your outreach programs, what are you seeking to accomplish in the years to come in terms of some of the exhibitions that you hope to bring 
to Washington and to other places, as well as some of the overall goals to really put forth this dynamic culture to a wider audience? Well, we have, I would say we have three goals. One, it's to promote the democratization of the access to culture. How can we achieve that? And let me start with with, uh, some of the products that are going to come out from the Cultural Center in the upcoming months. We're going to launch a free download iPad application by the end of February so that anybody can take a look, a detailed look, of our art collection composed of 1,722 pieces and learn about the artists that have shaped the evolution of contemporary Latin American art. We are also going to be present in the Google, in the Google Art Project that is uh, this, this amazing educational tool so that people that don't have geographical access to the most important museums in the world can take a look at the most important galleries and learn about the artists, the greatest artists in, in, in different regions. Now, we have also established a creative economy lab inside our our cultural center to highlight the importance of the cultural and the creative economy in Latin America. So we want to bring information to decision makers and policy makers, but also to the general public so that they know why is the cultural and creative economy a a new path that should be taken into consideration by many other countries. We're, We're looking at Brazil, for example. 5% 5% of the GDP derived, is derived from, from uh, culture and, and creative industries. country like Colombia, 4% of GDP. A city like Buenos Aires, Argentina, 9% of the GDP comes from industries like music, uh, in, from the arts, from theater, from design, from uh, video game production, and from software configuration. So this is a, it's a, it's a strategic point of our strategy. And third, which is linked to our cultural products in D.C., we want to use, for example, 2013 to present projects that have a linkage between culture and development. We're looking forward to have the landfill Philharmonic from Paraguay to come to D.C. by, by, by in the month of, uh, of June. We're also having an exhibition of women Panamanian artists that is going to be out in, in March. And what we want to showcase, for example, with this product is not only the story of Panama told by the, by the women artists of the country, but at the same time to honor the work that a development bank has been doing to make gender equity and, and the rights of women a strategic part of its strategy. We're also going to have more than um, five lectures this year. Almost uh, six movies will be presented. For example, we're going to have Hecho uh, in Mexico, Made in Mexico, for the DC Film Festival. That is an interesting documentary that talks about the evolution of the musical industry in Mexico linked with, uh, with the cultural heritage. We're also looking forward to have a Paraguayan film called Siete Cajas that has been uh, nominated for the Goya Prizes in Spain. And and, and as a whole, we are going to bring a diverse uh, amount of cultural products, but each one linked to a message of what our institution wants to achieve in the field with its core principles. Ivan, with all of these programs and educational outreach uh, taking place through, through the IDB and through your office, have you been able to gauge to some extent to which these programs are effective, let's say, in 
peaking interest uh, in some of the places that you visit in terms of encouraging inbound tourism to Latin America? Well, now you talk about impact. Let me let me talk about one of the most important programs that we have that we call it the Cultural Development Initiative. Every year we we have a call for proposals uh, where we select uh, um, a few amount of um, of uh, of grants to be given to cultural entrepreneurs in Latin America. What we what we try to find there is the programs that use culture for a social purpose. And let me talk about some of the examples. In Salvador, with the Salvadorian Opera, we, we worked to uh, lift, lift a young population at risk to use music as an educational tool and engage in opera training so that they can find or identify a way, a sustainable way of living in the art and getting them out of the risk of from being recruited from illegal armed groups. For example, in Peru, we also had a grant with the Pachacamac Museum to provide education to children that live in the surrounding areas of the museum to preserve pre-Hispanic uh, um, uh, trees and pre-Hispanic uh, uh, agricultural products. In, in Colombia, in Barranquilla, last year, we also supported a project for uh, small entrepreneurs that produce masks for the Barranquilla, Barranquilla Carnival and, and have a sustainable way of living by, by using a, a environmentally a sound techniques and recycled materials. So we have an experience of more than 550 projects where we have more than 200,000 direct beneficiaries, not to say the amount of indirect beneficiaries that could come almost to 600,000. So we have a long tradition of of being effective with, with cultural products, but always linked to social development and communitarian impact. I'm curious about the application process and whether or not the grants are, or the companies, the institutions that are uh, seeking grants actually partner with NGOs uh, here in the States or if, or, or if they maintain their, uh, you know, their own um, grant application process. I mean, what is the, the application process? And, and if we had an audience member listening, what would you tell them uh, as far as steps to, uh, to obtaining a, a grant or applying for a grant? Well, most of the grants that we, that we provide are for the Latin American and Caribbean countries. So uh, every year we open the, the call for proposals in, in late October until January 31st. And those, those organizations need to have a, a tracking record that means they need to have been in operation for more than five years. They need to bring a project that also has counterparty in terms of, of uh, resource contribution. That means that if a project has a value of, let's say, $10,000, at least 30% of counterpart needs to come either from new organization or from other sponsors. The tradition that we have seen is that once a project is selected through the rigorous process that we have, those projects tend to receive more counterparty from different sources. It's like a validation, a validation that, that they get from a, from a serious and prestigious institution like the IDB that can leverage the capacity of those entrepreneurs to get more resources. 
Now, if somebody from your audience in in, in the United States is hearing at, at, at this interview, they would know that they might have an opportunity to support those cultural entities that apply for a program every year. Mm -hmm. In our website, people can look at all these organizations. There are an enormous variety. We have people that have been working with music, others with art, others with architecture. We have museums. We have NGOs that, 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 that train kids with disabilities, mental and physical disabilities, through, through um, artistic techniques. So those organizations can, can be identified and can be supported by people that are abroad from Latin America and the Caribbean. We are certainly looking forward to covering a lot of the events that you have coming up. I was uh, very intrigued by, by the list of uh, films and, and um, music concerts and, and dance recitals that, uh, that you had mentioned. How can the public however, learn about upcoming events? Where should they go? Do you have a newsletter? Um, do they just need to visit your website? Yes, uh, they can visit the, the website, our website, that it's www.iadb.org slash cultural. And they will see a list of all our coming events but also they will find a very valuable historical record of our, our activities. They can look at all our previous catalogs. So if somebody wants to get informed about a specific uh, uh, projects that we have undertaken, like the one about the Mayas, they can download the catalog. They also have access to some of our more important lectures. We have a, a series of documents that we have called Encuentros, and you will find the most uh, inspiring Latin American intellectuals with, uh, with uh, their presentations that they have made at the IDB with, with, with their speeches. And uh, so I see our, our website not only as a tool to, to look at the events that we're going to bring in the coming months, but also as a way for, for the people to have access to first quality material from our cultural evolution. We are, we are also on Twitter and Facebook. We're at <laughs> IDB Culture, IDB Culture, and, and also on Facebook. So, so people can, can follow us over there. Bueno. Well, Ivan Duque Marquez is the Culture, Creativity, and Solidarity Division Chief with the Inter-American Development Bank. Thank you so much, Ivan, for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, so, thank you so, so much. When we return, we'll learn how sustainable winemaking is reshaping the wine industry in California from Allison Jordan of the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance. Um, there also are specific practices that actually can improve wine quality, so things like conserving water. Um, a lot of vintners um, and growers in this state are using drip irrigation, and by stressing the vine, you can actually improve the quality of the wine. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Southampton, England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us. And it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints and uh, wish you all the success with your show. And uh, looking forward to seeing you again. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., 
actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. My father had prostate cancer. My grandfather, two great uncles, died from it. I wish I'd known about the family history, but it just wasn't talked about. My name's Lonnie. I had my prostate removed in May of 1995, and I'm still here. So there is life after prostate cancer. I'm living proof. One thing I would want to share with any man that thinks that he may have prostate cancer is, number one, get it checked. Secondly, you have time after the diagnosis. Read, learn, go talk with your doctor, and make some decisions. Because knowledge is power. It cannot be understated, you know. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in Michigan. If you've been diagnosed, talk with your health care provider about your options and visit prostatecancerdecision.org today. Sponsored by the Michigan Department of Community Health, the Michigan Cancer Consortium, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with OneBrick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterwards. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick, volunteering made easy. Did you know that World of Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. I'm Lord Richard, and I'm from Northern Ireland, and I have uh, a record company uh, which produces New Orleans records, jazz records from the 1960s and early 70s uh, from New Orleans, and uh, I just love World Footprints. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Much to our delight, there is a growing consciousness toward sustainable consumption and practices in the food industry. What may surprise some is that this same stream of consciousness is also present in the wine industry. Allison Jordan is the executive director of the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, a nonprofit organization created by the Wine Institute and the California Association of Wine Grape Growers to promote environmental and social responsibility in the industry. And she joins us today to talk about the California wine community's leadership in sustainable practices. Allison, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. 
So what exactly, for those who may not be familiar with sustainable wine and sustainable wine growing, what exactly is that and what are the practices that that incorporates? Well, it's really starting with the broad definition of sustainability, which balances environment, economic considerations, as well as social equity. And if you look at some of the practices, they include protecting air and water quality, conserving energy, water, and soil, using soil, solar energy in vineyards and wineries, and also looking at all kinds of energy efficiency, including green building design, recycling and composting. Um, there are things like cover crops that attract beneficial insects, which can help minimize pesticide or herbicide use, but also they, it builds soil and reduces erosion. And there are also people that are using critters in the vineyard, like sheep, to graze on weeds. Um, or using nesting boxes and perches to attract owls and hawks that can prey on rodents and other pests in the vineyard. When people think of sustainable wine more so than sustainable food, which is you know another area that we really focus on, um, there's this misperception that the wine, the flavor of the wine has been compromised, that it's watier or, or lighter. How do you respond to those? Um, critics, basically, who say that, uh, you know, taste and and, and, uh, quality are compromised. Well, we actually think, and I've heard a lot of vintners and growers also talk about, really, it's it's about creating the highest quality in wine grapes and wine. You really can't help but um, be improving quality when you're paying so much attention to how you're growing the grapes and how you're making the wine. Um, There also are specific practices that actually can improve wine quality. So things like conserving water, um, a lot of vintners um, and growers in this state are using drip irrigation. And by stressing the vine, you can actually improve the quality of the wine. For full disclosure sake, we've had a chance to enjoy some sustainable wines, mostly when we've visited the West Coast, even British Columbia, and found didn't find any difference in, in the quality or the taste. Now, I, I mentioned British Columbia because I, I know that they're, you know, they've been very involved with sustainable wine growing um, for a number of years, but um, I also understand that California is probably uh, the leading state in North America who is uh, furthering these practices. Is that an accurate statement? or? I think so. We're the fourth largest wine region in the world, and we produce 90% of all U.S. wine. And so when you look at the, the um, breadth and depth of the industry, um, we have now 1,800 vineyard and winery organizations that are using our code of sustainable wine growing, and they represent nearly two-thirds of the wine grape acreage and the case production of the state. So it, it really is a lot of participation and people really paying attention and using um, what we consider this code of practices, which is really 200-plus best practices for growing grapes and making wine. Your organization, the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, what is the role of your organization in uh, furthering these practices and, and among the uh, coalition, I guess, of wine growers in the state? Well, as you mentioned, the two um, large statewide organizations, Wine Institute and the California Association of Wine Grape Growers, created the alliance in 2003. And the idea was really to be the one promoting and, and um, implementing the sustainable wine growing program. I mentioned that we have this code of best practices, which is 15 chapters that encompass more than 200 best practices from grapes to glass. 
And we also offer a lot of education and outreach around the state. So we've had over 200 workshops with more than 10,000 vintners and growers participating. Um, so it's really been something that we're able to help um, get the resources and, and bring together some of the expertise and bring the best knowledge of the industry together and be able to disseminate that throughout the state. And I understand that your organization also um, hosts a or spearheads an annual event in April called Down to Earth um, Month in alliance or uh, in conjunction with uh, Earth Day. W- what is that, and and how can people learn more about it? Yes, so April is officially California Wines Down to Earth Month, and we chose April because of the connection to Earth Day, as you mentioned. And it's really a way to celebrate the state's commitment to sustainable and other eco and community conscious wine growing and winemaking practices. And um, throughout the month, there are all kinds of fun and educational activities from hands on workshops and wine pairings to VIP tours, events, and other special offers. All of those can be found at www.discovercaliforniawines.com backslash D2E. And we are still developing the events for 2013, but some examples from last year are um, green and organic wine trails with, with multiple wineries that you can explore, um, Earth Day festivals throughout the state, horseback riding tours through vineyards, um, there's also some that offer dog-friendly vineyard hikes, which is a really fun way to get out there, um, picnics in sustainable vineyards, um, some tastings, and other sort of things like local sustainable cuisine winemaker dinners. So lots of ways to really understand how various wineries are implementing sustainable practices. You know, wine uh, wine tour through California is really a year-long event, and so are there opportunities to uh, partake of some of these similar events, um, perhaps not in a you know formal or organized fashion as uh, may be allowed during uh, Down to Earth Month? But are there um, are there opportunities for travelers, for some of our listeners, to enjoy some of the activities that you just mentioned throughout the year? Absolutely. California actually has 20 million visitors to wine country throughout the year, so um, we're always welcome and receptive of having people come and visit. And many wineries offer um, tours and vineyards as well, and they do highlight their sustainable practices. We always encourage people to ask questions about that because there's a lot of stories to tell. Um, and there are some wineries that offer specific eco-tours, so it's something you can look at also on the Discover California Wines website. We have year-round activities as well as those that are related to down-to-earth. I'm just wondering if, you know, the red varietal grapes uh, versus white grapes, if, is there more of a, um, a a variety of wine that is uh, more conducive to sustainability? some of these sustainable practices you talked about, or is it kind of balanced? It's really balanced, and it's all over the state, and it's all price points. So it really is something, um, because of the the level of commitment and, and participation, we're really finding that it's not specific to any one region or varietal or anything like that. It's really across the board. Um, and if you look at it, it's really about soil management and water management and managing your ecosystems, and so those things are very broadly applicable. Mm-hmm. And as far as some of the uh, the vineyards throughout the state, um, you know, there's always the the the, the favorites, the, the larger name brands. But um, can you share some of the perhaps smaller vineyards that uh, produce, you know, high quality wines that should be incorporated on a California wine tour? 
Yes, and you know, that's one of those things where on the down to earth where you'll see that um, the tours listed, that's a great way to do it. We also have a listing of wineries that are certified, and you'll see all levels, um, the small, medium, large wineries throughout the state. And similarly with those that are participating in the sustainable wine growing program. Um, there are also a number of other state or other um, sustainability programs in the state, um, such as Lodi Rules and SIP Certified and Napa Green, and they also list all of their participants or their certified wineries. And again, you'll see small, medium, large. Um, and I have lots of favorites, but it's hard to pick just a few. <laughs> well, do do share. I was actually going to ask you, you know, for some of your favorites. Even, but I was, you know, a little bit cautious because I know you're an association with membership, and I don't didn't want to take the chance of, uh, you know, stepping on any toes. But <laughs> you do have a couple of favorites. We'd love to to share those. Well, I I was just at um, Honig as as a great example in Napa for a tour, and they have so many bird boxes and a solar installation and all kinds of examples that you'll just see as you as you walk around. Um, another one in, in Napa is, is Groth Vineyards, and if you go to Sonoma, there are wonderful places like Jay Vineyards um, where you can get some wonderful sparkling, um, and they do all kinds of sustainable practices, and they're also a certified California sustainable wine growing winery. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a full list of those posted on the Discover California Wines website as well as at sustainablewinegrowing.org. Okay. Now, for for those who, you know, grow um, grapes at, at in the in the comfort of their backyard who, you know, produce wine for personal consumption, do you have any tips to offer those independent growers uh, for uh, incorporating sustainable practices? Sure. I mean, of course, there are the basics like conserving water, reducing, reusing, recycling, um, being as energy efficient as possible, turning off the lights or using um, the, uh, or very efficient light bulbs, um, things like that that are just really basic. Um, but some other interesting ones are, are this whole idea of putting critters to work, as I was talking about a little bit before. And there are some wineries like Bonterra and Honig and Jaylor um, that are, are creating homes for pest eaters by putting up bird boxes and bat houses. And if your area allows them, you can have chickens that do wonders for fertilizing the soil and eating bugs. And, of course, you get the benefit of fresh eggs. Um, There are things like composting. Many wineries, including Delicato, Terra Rouge, and others, are composting all of the leftovers from the great pressing process called pumice. Um, and it's really wonderful fertilizer. So don't throw scraps away if you are a winemaker at home. Don't throw that pumice away. Um, it, it, if you put it in the garbage disposal, that uses energy and water, and it wastes a great resource. It's better to really use it again for fertilizer. Um, wineries Claiborne and Churchill and Ridge um, solve both renewable resource and insulation puzzles by using um, straw bales and clay. Mm-hmm. And Sanford Winery chose stucco, Longmeadows used ram dearth. So there are all kinds of renewable materials that you can use if you're building from the bottom up or if you're, if you're basically at home and you're redecorating or you're, um, you have a small winery or wine shop, um, you can use natural renewable, renewable materials. Even for carpets, you can use wool, um, you can recycle things. And so there's a lot of really fun ways that you can really incorporate sustainability into your home or into your business. Allison Jordan is the Executive Director of the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance. 
thank you so much for joining us today. Cheers to you. Thank you. Cheers to you as well. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on your favorite social network. Just search for World Footprints. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media.